We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time, it's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Southern Taiwan correspondent Michael Smith. Likewise, thanks for having me. Tonight we'll be discussing a mixed bag of constitutional amendments looking to be a major focus of the new legislative session, the creation of a digital development ministry, KMT Chairman Johnny Jung making Time Magazine's 2021 Next List, the National Development Council touting the success of its employment gold card, and calls for more centralised action to combat invasive species. But we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan and issues surrounding the purchase of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Now on Wednesday, health Minister Chen Shih-jong said the government was close to securing 5 million doses of the vaccine late last year, but that deal fell through at the last minute. While Chen didn't directly say China was to blame, the health minister did imply there was a political dimension to the decision and there had been people worried, well, outside forces, he said, and he also went on to say that he believes someone didn't want Taiwan to be too happy. Now, those comments led to speculation that Beijing could have interfered with the deal, as the Shanghai Force Sun Pharmaceutical Group is BioNTech's agent for the coronavirus vaccine in China, Hong Kong, Macau and Taiwan somehow. However, BioNTech responded to Chen's comments, saying that it's committed to help bringing an end to the coronavirus pandemic for people across the world and does intend to supply Taiwan with its vaccine as part of its global commitment. The company also says that discussions with Taiwan are ongoing. And the health minister says that Taiwan was not actually in contact with the Chinese company that's acting as BioNTech's agent for the vaccine and all of the negotiations it's having are with directly with BioNTech employees. Now, meanwhile, the Central Epidemic Command Centre this week said it's still awaiting confirmation of how many AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine doses Taiwan will initially receive. They're going to be received through the COVAX Global Vaccine Sharing Programme. And according to health officials, although the government is in contact with COVAX, it has requested additional documentation before it can finalise the amount of vaccines that Taiwan can expect to see. Now, there was some immediate good news this week when the Central Epidemic Command Centre announced that all the employees and contract workers at the Taoyuan General Hospital have been tested negative for the coronavirus and its antibodies. Now, according to the centre spokesman, Zhuang Ren Sheng, 2,690 employees and contract workers at the hospital received PCR testing, while 2,441 were tested for antibodies in early February, all of which have now come back negative. And that means the hospital is now today reopening for normal business. A total of 21 people linked to the hospital were confirmed to have been infected with the coronavirus between mid-January and early this month. One of the patients sadly died on January the 29th, while two others are still in intensive care units and on respirators. But the Central Epidemic Command Centre says eight patients have now recovered and have been discharged. So, Brian, t- vaccines there, uh, Pfizer, BioNTech, uh, what happened? Yeah, it's actually very interesting uh, because this has become an issue of political tension between the KMT and the DPP. Uh, Previously, there were KMT politicians claiming that the difficulties obtaining the vaccine, the delays represented that the DPP's uh, vaccine uh, access strategy has failed. Particularly, Sean Lien and uh, Ma Ying-jeou of the KMT were using this to go after the DPP, claiming that because the distributor for the BioNTech uh, vaccine is a Chinese company, there would necessarily be political interference from from China. And in the sense that I think this is attempting to bolster 
to the claim that if the KMT was in power as the quote-unquote party able to maintain stable relations with China, there would not be this interference. And so it's uh, actually been raised, too, where, where are they getting this information then? And, and actually, when Chen Shizhong said this, I think he is responding to them in that sense, saying that, well, there is interference. Um, and I think that the KMT will use this as a, a way to attack the DPP, claiming its, its strategy is not working and so forth. But I think also then... In the end, actually, just kind of going open with this did actually work out for for the Tsai administration because now BioNTech has responded saying that it will provide vaccines. But I think it's it's still going to be a issue of contention. I think what's also interesting is that, uh, for example, uh, some of Taiwan's vaccines are to come through Covax, the international uh, network set up to distribute. Uh, vaccines, but Covax is one of the coordinators is the WHO, and so that's also possibly a source of Chinese pressure regarding Taiwan. And so I think this kind of issue is not over, but the way it's developed is is quite interesting. Yeah, so um, uh, I talked to several of the, the doctor friends and other people that uh, have some knowledge in this issue, and everyone pretty much just chuckled at the idea that China didn't have anything to do with uh, this because it's just sort of assumed that China would uh, want to put their foot on anything. I mean, if they could control the weather on Taiwan, they would probably try to do that as well. But most of the people that I talked to also said that they don't think that China is actually trying to stop Taiwan from eventually getting the vaccine, because that would be counterproductive. But they just want to control how we get it, when we get it, because they want to control everything. But they also mentioned a couple of other things that were uh, interesting and uh, um, quite positive. Uh, Number one, I'm hearing from most people that no one's really planning on doing any traveling uh, this year. So there's not a huge amount of uh, concern and desire to get this vaccine immediately because, as we all know, we are living in a relatively COVID-free environment. Secondly, there seems to be a pretty decent high trust in the national health insurance system. Uh, Last year, for example, the flu vaccine down here in the South, uh, there was extra left over even of the at the end of the, the, the flu season, there was a, a, extra ones that were, were not even used. Uh, we seem to be doing quite well with our health system. Um, thirdly, there's the, the fact that the, the information about the vaccine seems to keep changing. Pfizer is a two-dose vaccine, but then just today they came out with new uh, statistics showing that just one dose may uh, provide 90 percent uh, um, protection. So now they're talking about perhaps only using one dose. Johnson & Johnson, which originally was a one dose, is now thinking about maybe doing a two dose. So some of the doctors that I talked to were like, well, in some ways it's kind of good that we're waiting uh, a bit because everyone else is uh, exploring the, the, uh, the, or pioneering this, and we get to sort of uh, wait and, and find out and see what happens. And uh, also, there doesn't seem to be a lot of fear in disparities over, like, uh, wealth issues. There's not a lot of people in Taiwan that I know of who are worried that uh, only the wealthy will be able to access these vaccines when they do come through. And uh, that is an issue that uh, is quite strongly felt in other countries. So that's what I'm hearing down here. Yeah, I think it will continue to be an issue of political tension, uh, for example. Um, I'm actually kind of interested that when, if the KMT will bring out the claim that Taiwan should use, for example, Chinese vaccines, if there are continued delays, perhaps this will be a claim that eventually is introduced to the discourse. So far, the KMT is stuck to this kind of claim that China may interfere in obtaining Western-produced vaccines. Um, but I think also it'll be interesting to see there are some people who are that actually are, are somewhat fearful of getting the vaccine at present. Um, I think I wonder, I think the, uh, the Ministry of Health and Welfare will also have to dispel these kind of fears regarding vaccines, um, which I just think you see kind of across the world that, you know, perhaps you'll get it if you take the vaccine, that it might not be safe, that you should wait a bit, and so forth. But I don't think people are planning on traveling, and so there will be that 
Um, yeah, the vaccine hesitancy issue is definitely a global phenomenon. Exactly. But of course, you don't really hear about anti-vaxxers here. Yeah, that's right. I when mean, they, that's... Have the, they, have the, <laughs> they have the flu things every year. Not, not the crazy people who say that they shouldn't get their kids uh, chicken pox vaccinations because of Jesus or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, when every year the government has its flu vaccine, mm-hmm. you don't hear, you don't see people on the street outside the government office of the health, the local health office, for example. Holding placards or, yeah. Yeah, saying vaccines will send you to hell or turn you into a lizard person <laughs> right. or something. Yeah? yeah, that's also a nice thing about Taiwan. Uh, there are people that I, I feel are sometimes that they feel the vaccine this year is not safe, so we'll na- wait till next year to get the flu vaccine. You do have those kind of types. And so I also wonder about that with regarding um, these kind of COVID-19 vaccines. I also think that perhaps there'll be uh, fears regarding specific vaccines that, oh, we should get this one and not that one. And so I think that actually will be a challenge uh, for the Ministry of Health and Welfare in terms of messaging, because Taiwan is is going for three different kinds of vaccines. Right. Yeah, there's so many unanswered questions. And it's true, uh, Brian, as you mentioned last year, we did have a, a, a spat of people get sick from the, the flu vaccine, and then there were some, some issues with it. So, it's, yeah, that's an issue. I think that happens every year with these vaccines. It started in Korea, that problem, of course. Right. And then, right. of course, the government were quite upfront about, you know, every year certain percentage of people do get sick from taking it. And then the sort of the, the issue sort of went away. Yeah, yeah. I think also just the, the belief that uh, you might not, you just will not get COVID from having the vaccine. There were, I think people sometimes just don't understand actually how vaccines work. Um, and so I think that there will still be some uh, issues with that. But I think the, the Ministry of Health and Welfare and the Central Epidemic Command Center has done a really good job in terms of uh, communicating uh, to the public so far regarding what measures to take. Uh, you know, having also this information available in a, vi- a variety of formats in, in internet memes for young people, uh, line, line stickers, uh, cute dogs, and that sort of thing. So I think with vaccines, they'll, they'll probably be um, similar channels for, for kind of circulating this information. And of course, Brian, the health minister this week also came out and dismissed allegations that human negligence was responsible for the Taoyuan General Hospital outbreak. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is another point in which the Pan Blue Camp has sought to attack the DPP. There were some KMT politicians calling for even a lockdown of Taoyuan, despite how, how premature that would be. Um, but it is, it is it has been a challenge. I mean, this was the largest uh, cluster case in Taiwan to date. And now that things are over, things hopefully will get back to normal. But um, I think people will claim that, I mean, there will be voices, of course, that claim that this was because of negligence, that the DPP should have taken more stringent measures and so forth. But also, I think it's just remarkable that to date, there has not been a case of medical personnel getting COVID from a patient until until this cluster. Yeah, seriously. I mean, the fact that it came from a hospital where a doctor was treating someone and then his extended family was uh, was infected is hardly surprising. And uh, the people who were freaking out about it uh, just, yeah, I, I, it, it was quite surprising to me that there was even any any shock over this entire thing. And we did hear down here in the South as well, people wondering of whether they should suspend travel to that area. But you know, Taiwan is so interconnected and so linked. And as we found out very quickly, the Taoyuan cluster, there were people that had traveled to Elon and Hualien within like, you know, minutes after discovering it. So we, we got lucky with this one. Um, we need to keep our guard up. But uh, to argue that there was negligence at a hospital that was treating COVID patients is, uh, is a pretty tall thing to, to claim. Anyway, moving away from the coronavirus and talking about the legislature. And Legislative Secretary General Lin Jia this week said he believes that constitutional amendments will be a major focus of the new legislative session in the year of the ox. Now, controversy over the issue of imported pork containing ractopamine led to the failure during the previous legislative session to convene what would have been the first meeting of the Legislative Constitutional Amendment Committee. And while Lin says he believes the committee will now meet in the coming weeks, he's also warning that lawmakers from both 
both the ruling and opposition parties have really yet to agree on consensus regarding what issues the committee should first discuss. Now, lawmakers have submitted 42 proposals for constitutional amendments, and they include lowering the voting age to 18, the abolishment of the Examination UN and the Control UN, proposals to amend laws governing the election of at-large lawmakers, and also ways to streamline the confirmation procedures for cabinet officials. The DPP, though, is reportedly, according to the United Daily News, backing away from insisting on more Taiwan-centric and controversial amendments, such as the removal of national reunification from the Constitution. And while there's obviously plenty of nitty-gritty domestic politics issues to discuss in amending the Constitution, there have also been calls for three constitutional amendments to enshrine animal rights in, well, the Constitution. Now, the issues are all enjoying cross-party support, and draft versions of such amendments have been introduced by the DPP, the KMT, the Taiwan People's Party and the New Power Party. And they include a proposal to the government protect biodiversity and animal habitats, a proposal to create a rule of law that prioritises the protection and welfare of animals, and a call that animals not be considered objects but given dignity. Brian, there you go. Animals in the Constitution. Yeah, it's uh, interesting that this issue comes up. I think this is another one of these attempts, uh, particularly from the pan-green camp, to show how progressive Taiwan is. I think this is a way that I think for some lawmakers to to put Taiwan on the map, that Taiwan is a country that is progressive enough to enshrine animal rights. And I think this would be touted in that sense uh, internationally. Um, and it's interesting the way that animal rights has become a national issue sometimes on the basis of uh, very local incidents, for example. Just the killing of a cat, for example, in Taipei uh, that was very popular led to protests and actually just anger against the, the killer, who seemed to be someone suffering from mental illness. Uh, also, documentaries in past years, such as uh, 12 Nights, have raised attention to euthanasia in, in, in animal shelters, and that has become an issue. Um, it's actually kind of interesting, too, because when Thai originally ran in 2016, there were kind of visual references to uh, the, this issue of 12 Nights and and animal use in Asia and summer campaign ads. And Thai is, of course, have all these uh, campaign ads with cats and, and that sort of thing. Um, but I think uh, it's also a question then, how far will this get? Because I think whenever constitutional uh, reform comes up, you always have the same host of issues, uh, particularly regarding national symbols and, and that sort of thing. Um, changing up the system of government from the current five branches of government and, and reducing the, uh, getting rid of the control and examination ran and, and that sort of thing. And, and just will it get resolved? Uh, that, that just usually, it just comes up again in, in the next year as, as another political issue. So, so yeah. Michael, do you expect animals to have dignity anytime soon, or do you think they'll get bogged down in the legislature? Um, okay, so there's, there's two, two things here. So Kaohsiung, for example, the other day opened the very first pet cemetery or memorial park in the country where you can go and you can bury your dog or pet cat, and uh, there's like a reflection pond, and you can sit there and grieve for your animal. And this is all, these are good steps forward. And uh, putting something into the Constitution would also be a good step forward. But there's a big difference between uh, writing something into law and it becoming actual practice. So, for example, when we enshrined the rights of gay people to uh, have uh, the right to same-sex marriage, that was a snap-of-the-finger sort of thing, where one minute it was law and one minute it wasn't law, and you could, you could get married, right? But this is a thing that is going to require a huge amount of evolution and education of people. If you've traveled anywhere... Uh, uh, in Taiwan, passed out of Taipei City, and you've seen a, a pork farmer or, or a duck farm or any of these places, they are hideous. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm biased as a vegetarian, but these places are, are, are just uh, horror houses. And uh, if you want to look at places that have animal rights enshrined in the Constitution, we can take the EU, for example. The EU has the five protections for farming animals, and those are freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from discomfort, 
freedom from pain, freedom from injury and disease, fear and distress, and the right to express normal behavior. So getting to that kind of a utopia is the goal that I would like to see, but I would rather them start with education programs uh, working towards improving the lives of the animals that we eat and we farm for eggs and stuff like that. I'd, I'd rather that than a constitutional move. Not to say we couldn't do both at the same time, but just because you're going to write it into law does not mean that we're going to suddenly see a, uh, a lot of happy cows. I, I, I really feel we need to uh, work from the ground roots up on this one. Absolutely. And I think that the way this will be framed is, is in terms of primarily stray animals, stray animals that are pets, uh, cats and dogs and, and that sort of thing. I think there will not be attention to, for example, farming practices in Taiwan. I think that mm. that's the way it will play out. Um, yeah, and so in that sense, I think that there, there are also these broader issues. I mean, just regarding pets, for example, there's sometimes there's a really odd prevalent belief that you can just release animals and, and they will be okay on the street and, and that sort of thing. And there's still the Buddhist practices of, for example, releasing birds and, and animals that actually can't survive in the wild. And then when it comes to farming or even uh, just like touring farms, for example, there is a, a farm, I think it is, I think it might be in Kaohsiung, uh, in which there, there are issues where the animal, there, there's a, a sheep shaving show and, and they will actually sometimes clip off parts of the body of, of the, the animal just in terms of this. And this is a tourist attraction and that sort of thing. I think the ways in which uh, animals are exploited just for entertainment even or just uh, in farming practices, that, that will not be focused on regarding um, enshrining rights in the Constitution. I think that takes more uh, education. I don't think there will be a corresponding push for it. It's interesting. I mean, you brought up the gay marriage issue. Uh, at the same time as the uh, pushes for changes in the Constitution to allow for same-sex marriage is also the debate regarding education, uh, regarding education about homosexuality in schools and that sort of thing. But that will probably not become a political issue in the same way regarding animal rights. There will not be a similar push for better education in schools about animals. I think that's, that's probably not, there's probably no political desire for that or willpower for that to happen. I think it was very wise of the DPP to, at this stage, go ahead and drop those proposals for changing symbols or various other things in the Constitution, because they really would have uh, accomplished very little and would have caused a lot of strife. But if we can get rid of the control UN and the, uh, the, the, the legislator issue and uh, some of these other things, uh, lowering the voting age, if that could get done, that, that, that means way more than uh, changing a symbol or changing a name or something like that. So the fact that they're being practical about this is a, a really good sign, in my view. Do you think they're being practical or someone's told them, don't do it? Uh, I think it's a combination of both. But I think yeah, that there will still be, Brian, still be some yeah, anger from the deep greens, which will inevitably happen. But, I mean, do you think the DPP is going to push this forward one day, or do you think it's just going to remove it completely? I think it will be particularly more and more of a question as uh, Ty reaches the end of her term. Um, just will she actually get things done when she has less to lose politically from that? And so that, that's also a question. I mean, that, I think that came up, I mean, basically with Chen Trabian near the end of his term, all the, the spate of renaming things, for example. Um, and so then I think this will also be an issue with Ty. Well, but, she actually has a lot to lose. Uh, she wants to cement her legacy as the uh, only so far successful DPP president of, of, of Taiwan, who would leave without, you know, scandal or controversy. So she wants her successor, to, obviously, to be a, a member of her same party. She wants to transfer power over to, to someone. So she has a lot riding on the, the end of her term. And I would say that if I were her, I, and if I were one of her counselors, I wouldn't be all that excited about trying to push forward with, like, uh, a change to a symbol or something like that at this point, because it's just not the most important thing for the DPP at this moment. They, uh, they, they, they're so far on a, on a winning streak, and the tie has done very well for the party. So why, uh, why foul things up at this moment? 
And talking of the Cabinet now, well, on Wednesday it announced that a proposal for the establishment of a Ministry of Digital Development will soon be submitted to the Legislature. Under the proposal, the new Ministry will be tasked with supervising the information and communications technology industry, and as well as network infrastructure construction and management of information and communication security. Now, according to officials, the planned Digital Development Ministry will incorporate the business business areas of various government agencies. Those agencies include the National Communications Commission and the Department of Posts and Telecommunications, the Industrial Development Bureau, the Department of Information Management under the National Development Council and the Cabinet's Department of Information Management. Now, the proposal is part of a Cabinet organisational reform plan involving a draft amendment to the Organisational Act of the Executive UN, which passed its third reading in the Legislative UN nearly 11 years ago. So, Brian, obviously some people might argue... Yeah, putting all these government offices under one roof is a good thing. But then some might argue, well, don't these offices already deal with things to do with basically technology, network infrastructure and et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, that's right. And so the question then is, will this clear out some of the bureaucratic hurdles to developing uh, technology in Taiwan and, and digital technologies in Taiwan? Or will it actually just encounter the same issues that have been plaguing this, the bureaucracy in, in government for ages? I think the issue in Taiwan frequently as government is that uh, different ministries, different bureaus do not like to cooperate with each other. They will always fight over territory uh, mm. regarding uh, cooperation between them. Just interdepartmental or interministerial cooperation is always very difficult regarding everything from digital technologies to, let's say, migrant workers and so forth. And that's the thing, actually. The Fundamentally, these these uh, although you maybe will have a new ministry to deal with this, you still actually do have to cooperate with the other ministries. And so, it's a question then: Can you actually cut through that by upgrading this uh, the kind of power that uh, developing digital technologies has, or will it actually just encounter the same issues? And so, I think that's often the, the case that the executive branch of government will declare there's a need to do something, but then encounters resistance from bureaucracy and there's infighting between the different uh, ministries and that sort of thing. And so, creating a new one might not actually have that issue too. And when you do have a new ministry it will also try to mark out its turf. And so then you will have the same issue, I think. Yeah, I think Brian hit the nail on the head. Um, it's amazing. So we, in Kaohsiung, we have, you know, the Ministry of Culture. You have the minister just like every other city. And it's really shocking to see how how they squabble amongst each other when they're all on the same team and they're supposed to be fighting for the same city. And this is exactly what would happen if they consolidate this. They still would have this trouble with not understanding that they're working for the same side. So, yeah, we really need to get through this, uh, this turf war issue that happens in Taiwan. But uh, one quick aside on the, um, uh, this new ministry, which is said to uh, be going to possibly supervise science parks. There's a big issue that we have down here in the South with the debate over these so-called science parks, which many of them just seem to be bulldozed level areas with roads and then a lot of empty plots and a sign that says, blah, 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 science park. And every time a politician comes down and they see an empty plot of land almost down here, it's like, we're going to build a science park and bring in X amount of jobs. And it doesn't seem to be uh, producing the, the, the fruits that they are, are claiming. So uh, hopefully, if this new ministry does go ahead, they'll get some clearer guidelines or we'll get some more um, uh, clarity as to whether or not we need these science parks, where they should be, uh, what they should be doing, and uh, just... Uh, 
getting getting some of them moving or, or anything. I don't know what Brian has to say about that. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Just a lot of local governments uh, like to tout that we will have a science park here. We will develop the city in that sense, and we'll bring in white-collar tech workers and that sort of thing. But then the question is that Taiwan already has science parks. They have energy needs. Uh, they affect the environment and so forth. But the existing space and the existing science parks are not being efficiently utilized. But I think then for local politicians, this is, is a way to cement a legacy or say that you're developing an area. And so then I think that that's the question regarding, uh, I think, a digital ministry, that sometimes you do have the focus on big, flashy uh, things such as opening science parks or projects that actually seem as though they, they, they get a lot of attention, but they don't actually have very much substance behind them. Mm. Um, and I think that's another challenge. I think also just sometimes the government will just kind of appoint some young person to kind of head up this sort of thing, someone such as Audrey Tang, uh, to head it up, but actually their ability to actually command power or get things done is, is somewhat limited behind the scenes, or the people underneath someone like that is are, are still bureaucrats and, and not willing to do things. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the clear guidelines could work, but I think that this is precisely where you will encounter a lot of this bureaucratic infighting between this this ministry and local governments, for example. They will fight over, should you do this, should you not do this, etc., etc. Agreed. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. And while the DPP heavyweights opted to forego temple visits this Lunar New Year, former President Ma ying was joined by KMT Chairman Johnny Jung and Zhao Xiaokang. And they visited the Shen Si Temple in New Taipei City's Sanjong District to welcome the Year of the Ox. And speaking to reporters at the temple, they vowed to unify the party and return it to power in 2024. Speaking during the temple visit to reporters, Ma said that he hopes Zhao's return to the party will encourage other members who no longer have much to do with the KMT to also return to the party. Now, Zhao Xiaokang also made news this week when the National Communications Commission on Thursday said it's looking into whether Zhao would be in violation of the Radio and Television Act by taking a position within the KMT. That move comes after the KMT announced that it invited Zhao to be a member of the Central Advisory Committee. Zhao currently serves, though, as the chairman of the Broadcast Corporation of China and is also a, the company's largest shareholder. But according to Zhao, if he's elected to a political role within the KMT, he will be willing to step down from his media positions and also divest from any related investments. Now, it's believed that Zhao has offered the position on the review committee so he can actually run for the post of KMT chairman. Now, later on in the week, on Thursday, it was announced again that Time magazine published its 2021 Time 100 Next list, which included KMT chairman Johnny Jung in the leaders section. Now, Time wrote, elected in 2020 as the youngest ever leader of Asia's oldest political party, 48-year-old Johnny Jung knew that reforming the KMT wouldn't be easy. But given that his party had just suffered two straight crushing election defeats, he knew they needed to move away from their ageing base and attract a new generation of voters. The problem... The KMT has long held the position of self-ruling Taiwan and the Chinese mainland are part of the same country, a notion welcomed by Beijing but alienating to young Taiwanese eager to forge their own way. Now, recalibrating this stance is vital to the future of the KMT. However, it risks angering an increasingly hawkish Chinese government, which has repeatedly vowed to invade the island should Taiwan declare independence. Moreover, the United States is obligated by treaty to sell Taiwan weapons and could be drawn into any conflict. 
regional stability may rely on the ability of Zhang, a US-trained former academic and economist, to navigate his tightrope while quelling populist voices within his own ranks. Now, the only quote from Zhang in that timepiece is when he says, the youth will be the major decision-makers in our party. So, Brian, Johnny Zhang pops off to a temple in New Taipei with two rather elderly men, and apparently youth is the way forward. Yeah, and it's very funny, too, because then he was named as significant in this list when the question is, will he just be consigned to insignificance if he loses the chair election? And that, that is the issue, actually, just that uh, Chang came into office promising to make all these changes, but then ran to such resistance from the establishment, uh, promising to, to bring more young people in the party to win the young voters back by changing the pro-China image of the party, but then actually not be able to do this. I mean, early on, he proposed dropping, for example, the 1992 consensus, but this was resistance. Uh, we've also just seen the return of Mayingzu in the party to a position of prominence. He previously kind of hung back, but now he is as a kind of elder statesman, but now he is actually very actively involved uh, in all the publicity photos. Now he is in the center, sometimes not Jiang, actually, despite being the, the chair. And then with Zhao, just uh, uh, Johnny Chang just had no option except to make way for his biggest challenger, perhaps, just that he actually had to allow someone just to come in from the outside uh, and just name him to the Central Standing Committee. And, and that's, that's a pattern the KMT is seeming to fall into, where someone comes in from the outside and says they will save the party, usually someone with a background in, in media or industry, such as Terry Grove, who is the CEO of Foxconn. Um, and that also or Ang Yi. Yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, and just then, then that uh, these people also are usually not people that reform the party. They actually will push it in more of a deep blue direction. And, and that will that win back voters? Probably not, I think. Yeah, we shouldn't also forget that uh, you said Time magazine named him. But um, actually, it was an article written by reporter Charlie Campbell. And I'm not going to denigrate the man himself. I don't know him, but he is the Time correspondent for China based in Beijing, I believe, and does quite a few articles on China and greater China and things like that. And he uh, he seems to uh, be more, uh, has his head, let's just say, more in China rather than uh, uh, towards Taiwan. But yeah, as Brian was mentioning, uh, to, to to hear someone like Mying Zhou and uh, the Jaw character uh, claiming that they're going to reform the party, these two 70-year-olds who still <laughs> dye their hair and look ridiculous, uh, is just just not going to happen. Um, uh, also, I'd be very interested to see if Johnny Zhang himself ran for anything. Uh, I don't think he's been anything that I'm aware of, like a mayor or a legislator or whatever. Uh, if he ran for a mayorship, if he could even win that. Uh, they say he's popular, but popular with who? So it's, uh, it seems pretty much to be a farce, and they aren't, the KMT aren't developing the youth in the same way that the DPP is. And this has been happening for, oh, I don't know, decades, you know, We've seen the same problem over and over again. The one character that I was watching very closely on the blue side was the former, I believe, um, uh, magistrate of Taidong, Justin Lin was his name. Mm -hmm. And he was, uh, he seemed to me, because I interviewed him once, he seemed to me like a a blue character who uh, had a head on his shoulders and and really, you know, could could take the party forward. But then he got into some kerfuffle with uh, the new uh, Johnny Zhang uh, thing, and he stepped down. And uh, so they're just, they're they're not generating young people in the same way, whereas we hear from DPP heads of government, such as just uh, the guy who runs the Kaohsiung chapter, but they're going to change the the logo of the DPP party down here in Kaohsiung change their uniforms, they're working on baseball games for young people, and there's lots of proactive stuff that's going on. So the, 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 the idea of seeing Ma and Ja as a, somehow uh, uh, attracting youth is just yeah, m- more than comical. And of course, Brian, we've got probably another showdown between the National Communications Commission and the KMT 
if they decide to clamp down on whether Zhao can actually become a party member, run on a committee, work on a KMT committee, and also keep his job at BCC. That's or right. run for president as an independent, right? No? <laughs> like a sort of new new party. Yeah, um, a, new, a new new party? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, actually, because I think then, I mean, the time mission would be accused of interfering uh, against political opponents if it actually comes in too hard against Zhao. But then this raises questions, too. For example, we just had the issue with Zhongtian and that they had so much coverage of Han Goryu just nonstop and they were fine for that. And the Pan Blues kind of rallied around this issue, saying that, that press freedom is dead in Taiwan and the Thai administration was, was conducting a green terror, quote-unquote. And so I think these allegations would be made again, but then there has to be some way to kind of uh, separate the media from pan blue interests in a way that preserves objectivity. And so that's I think that's a challenge here. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think he will position himself in that way to be the uh, candidate for the Han Goryu supporter types, the deep blues that are, are very unhappy with things currently in Taiwan. And he will have this kind of populist way of backing him, but that's still not going to be the young people. Um, and, so and, that, and yeah, when yeah. you say uh, uh, people behind him, I mean, if you look at polls, we're looking at what? Maybe 25% of the electorate? Exactly, yeah. And so it's, it's, it's one of those things that's puzzling. The KMT has still not managed to groom young people. And the quote-unquote young people in the room seem to be uh, Johnny Chang himself and Eric Chu, who seem to have aligned versus um, for Jaw and Han and, and these kind of types. But they're not exactly young people. I mean, we've observed just, for example, Eric Chu changing his image to be more hipsterish almost. Uh, Johnny Chang is, is comparatively younger, but they're not exactly the people that inspire uh, mass followings the way that some DPP politicians, the younger ones, have kind of fan bases and that sort of thing. Um, and just the attempts to kind of reach out through social media, uh, developing an app, for example, and dressing up as Zhuge Liang and, and, and whatever right. for Johnny Chang. That, that's funny, but also it's, it's, it's not the thing that gets viral fame, and I, I don't think it's going to get there. And the guy who's getting a little bit of uh, credence and, and, and uh, uh, praise for uh, actually being somewhat efficient as a governor is uh, the new Taipei Mayor Ho, right? And, that's right. Uh, down here in the South, uh, when I've talked to several DPP friends of mine, they say that they fear him more than anybody else as a, DP, uh, as a KMT contender in 2024. Yeah, and he's distanced himself from the party just knowing that Very it's not good so. to, to get stuck into this, this factional conflict. And so he's the one that's actually positioning himself for something else. And Ho is an interesting character, too, because the DPP did try to recruit him once upon a time for, based on his distinguished polit- uh, police career. And so he's actually not as deep blue. And so he's the person that I think people are kind of watching. Uh, he could be a pr- potential presidential contender. But then you actually look at the state of the KMT and, and would they actually know that he's the person to go for? That's even a question. And if they go ahead and split the ticket between Ho as uh, the KMT and then uh, Jaw as some sort of whatever, and then who knows, James Song, he likes to run for everything, so he might uh, decide to run for something again, then they're just doomed uh, just automatically. It's just uh, a matter of math. And moving on, and the National Development Council was busy touting the number of recipients of its employment gold card on the first day of the Lunar New Year. Council Minister Gong Ming-shin said the number of recipients took a big jump in 2020, and Gong described the rise as being a reflection of Taiwan's attractiveness as a safe haven amid the global coronavirus pandemic. Government figures show that a total of 1,399 foreign nationals received the special work and residency permit for highly skilled foreign talent last year. That figure was far higher than the 358 
28 in 2019 and the 188 people who received the card in 2018, the same year the NDC launched the system. Now, as of January the 31st of this year, a total of 2,127 gold employment cards have been issued to foreign professionals. Now, broken down, that included 1,468 to those in economic fields, followed by 228 in the technology category, 164 in culture and the arts, 132 in finance, 128 in education, 6 in architecture and 1 in the sports category. Now, the employment gold card made news the day after the Lunar New Year holiday when the National Immigration Agency announced that a 24-year-old American YouTuber had been awarded one. So apparently, Brian, she was awarded the card because she has expertise in culture and the arts because she's published Taiwan culture-themed content for more than two years. Yeah, it's, it's ironic, but I think with these programs, the gold card or honorationship and that sort of thing, you either have the kind of very elderly priest that is 80 or 90 years old or the very right. young 24-year-old YouTuber. So it seems that the, the Tsai Administration is really trying to go for influencers, believing that this is a way to increase soft power. I think that uh, some initiatives, for example, previously before COVID, there was a, a contest to draw people to allow them to stay a night in the presidential office and it seemed like they were looking for influencers and so this is this seems to be what the time mission is banking on but is that what Taiwan needs that's a question uh, I also think that in terms of the gold card offerings I mean a lot of people are coming here because of COVID but will people actually stay there's so much bureaucracy in terms of uh, running a business starting a business being an entrepreneur or being a high level professional that after I think COVID passes people might just leave I think that I, I mean there are people having uh, for example there's also been a lot more entrepreneurship visas now and people are having difficulty meeting the requirements to actually stay in a business just because you can't launch a business so fast. And so too with the gold card, will these people actually stay? Are, are, is it actually, does this actually mean Taiwan is attractive that it's luring these professionals here, or is it just because of COVID? That's, that's also an issue. I do think the, uh, the, the, the YouTuber actually, there, there's some good uh, to be said about that because it demonstrates that uh, they're giving a visa to someone who can do something rather than someone who has papers that claim they can do something. And Taiwan really uh, needs to get away from this whole idea that just because you graduated with a four-year bachelor's degree in French literature or something, you can you know, work in Taiwan in some whatever random field. It's, uh, it's quite frustrating to, to see people who are genuinely talented in various fields who are not able to work in Taiwan because they don't have, uh, you know, some, some ridiculous piece of paper. We, we are still very stuck in an old mindset. It's, uh, the 21st century is really about what you can do rather than, you know, what, you, uh, have, what papers you have. So uh, if this uh, 24-year-old, if she's good at what she does and she's uh, pulling in views, then I say give it to her. But meanwhile, we also need to still figure out the issue of uh, children born in Taiwan. They made progress on it. They bumped the age up to 26 uh, that you could stay on your parents. But it still isn't enough because there are, there, there are literally uh, thousands of, of kids who grew up in Taiwan, know no other nation but Taiwan, and uh, speak Chinese fluently and usually a second language. But they, uh, some of them don't choose to go to college, and then they're in this catch-22 where they can't get a visa to stay in their country. So we need to somehow work on some way that they automatically, if they've lived in Taiwan for X amount of years, should be able to get a uh, permanent residency, if nothing else. 
and uh, it's, it, it's been a problem we've talked about for uh, at least a decade. Then finally, my last thought is uh, I went in and got my new APRC number the other day, and uh, it seems to be working well. I, I booked a couple things with it, and uh, it, it's fine. However, a friend of mine coming down from Taipei who is a journalist was not able to book an HSR ticket with his new number, which is uh, was similarly formatted to, to my new one. So this digital ministry that's coming up and uh, these gold cards and all of this are good, but we do have some of the little areas where we might want to start uh, plugging these little holes and working out these uh, uh, kinks quickly. Absolutely, and I think it's also one of the issues that just any administration, the Tide administration uh, in particular, is, is its eye on attracting people from the outside while not paying attention to these existing issues, which would just make mm. life go smoother. Um, or just, you know, dealing with that, these these people that have don't have visa statuses but have been here um, all their lives. And, and that's, these that's people what, are yeah. so much more valuable in a exactly, way because yeah. they understand the culture, they understand the country, and they're, they're, they're bilingual. They're, they're the kind of people that would really be making huge contributions, and we're kicking them out of the country and forcing them to go back to Europe or the U.S. or wherever, uh, simply because they don't have a college degree because they were born here and raised here. It's just nonsensical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of these people end up in roles where they can play a bridge, a role of bridging Taiwan the rest Very of the world, so. actually. And uh, this is oftentimes the fields that people like that end up in, and just somehow the government has not realized that, that there's this human capital you can capitalize on, or just uh, just in terms of like these issues that have been around for years and years and years, somehow just the bureaucracy is not willing to address it. And I think that's also just one of those things, that this is one of the things that gets lost in bureaucratic infighting among the government. And so despite this being known, just then no action gets taken on it because you're trying to go after these flashy things, uh, such as awarding YouTuber the gold card status and so forth. Anyway, before we go this week, the Forestry Bureau announced over the Lunar New Year holiday that it plans to take further action to tackle problems caused by invasive species. Now, according to the Bureau, it plans to work with the Fisheries Agency to combat the issue, which has been highlighted in recent months following local government-backed campaigns to tackle problems caused by amphibians and reptiles. Now, the negative impacts of invasive species include predation, competition, hybridization, and the introduction of exotic pathogens. A recent study found that 14 species are considered at high risk to become invasive species here in Taiwan, and they're either common in pet shops, frequently escape, and are found in near-urban regions, or experience high levels of accidental invasion by international traders. Officials have long warned about the failure to properly regulate the island's exotic pet market here. And lawmakers have long been calling on the central government to establish a single agency to deal with all invasive species, be they fauna or flora. So, Brian, invasive species, a bit of a problem. We've got lawmakers saying there should be one agency to do it. But, of course, over the Lunar New Year holiday, the Forestry Bureau said us and the Fisheries Agency are going to deal with it. Yeah, and I, I also question if they'll just try to push responsibilities back and forth again, because that's what happens always with government. Um, it isn't, it's good to see the issue getting more attention now in terms of the press and so forth, but then will we'll actually the, there be action taken on the issue? That's, that's a question. And just then, uh, this kind of issue will just continually recur, because people do release their pets, and unexpected things happen, and, and, and so forth. Of course, unexpected things happen with iguanas in your neck of the woods, Michael. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these invasive species uh, seem to like uh, the warmth, uh, much, much like myself. Uh, we moved <laughs> down south because we couldn't take the, uh, the shivering temperatures up uh, in Taipei. And iguanas are uh, a prime example. We have uh, a huge uh, problem. But I'm not exactly clear on what the problem is necessarily other than scaring people as we walk out <laughs> on this, uh, you know, in, in the, especially in the Pingdong area. So some uh, farmer or elderly person will take a stroll and there'll be this 
massive, you know, uh, half dinosaur looking thing sunning itself and they'll freak out. But it hasn't been demonstrated to my satisfaction so far that they pose any significant risk because they are uh, vegetarian, as, as far as I know. So uh, perhaps there's a pathogen issue that needs to be done. But the government has been, both in Kaohsiung and in Pingdong, they have been giving out uh, certain bounties for catching these uh, uh, lizards. And um, uh, despite myself being a vegetarian, the, the smartest thing that I've heard so far suggested for these uh, animals is uh, that we eat them. Because uh, eating iguana meat is nothing new. In fact, it's uh, in Mexico, Central South America, it's a uh, common delicacy. It's even found in U.S. restaurants. So um, eat the lizards. There you go. <laughs> but, of course, there was a famous video, Brian. A family went out like they, like they were living in the West as bounty hunters. That's right. And then they captured all, uh, they killed all these iguanas and displayed the dead bodies, which I found somewhat odd and, and weird taste. But uh, that's one way forward, I guess. Uh, yeah, I don't know if this is going to inspire a wave of vigilantes hunting iguana exactly. That would be a somewhat odd sort of <laughs> phenomenon. But of course, Michael, we have the island's exotic pet market. Yeah, I mean, this just in general, uh, the, the stores that you see when you pass by, you see these like uh, half-bred uh, uh, dogs, you know, that are these tiny little miniature toy dogs that they do and these specialized cats and, and sitting in these tiny cages and stuff. And it just sort of breaks your heart because they, you know that these animals are, are not going to be healthy. They're not going And just in general, we have such a huge problem with stray animals already. The fact that we have even, uh, we legalize uh, the selling of pets or pet stores is, is is something that I already am opposed to. But when it comes to exotic stuff, yeah, I mean, this is a problem that uh, people all over the world, we've, we've We've been through this from Australia with, you know, everything from rabbits to you name it, to camels, to Colombia, where Pablo Escobar got a couple of hippos in uh, because he thought they were cool. And now there's a hippo problem in Colombia, of all places. So uh, we, we should learn from the rest of the world and, and, and take some action quickly so that we uh, don't end up having, I don't know, an alligator problem. Because, Brian, Taiwan is rather small, so invasive species could actually cause quite a bit of harm in Taiwan due to landmass space. Yeah, that's right. And I think uh, they, they can just uh, reproduce very quickly and, and depends on what species, but then you then you have a, a very large problem you're dealing with. But I think, yeah, absolutely, it's the issue that there are a lot of trends. Uh, certain animals become trendy and they get released when people get bored of them. And, and just then you end up having a population out there. I mean, you have this with dog breeds and all the time, uh, whatever dog breed is, is common, but then with exotic pets, this also just has potential for disaster. Um, so I think then that's the origin of this issue. But um, it's hard to then, that also I think returns to what we're talking about regarding education about this issue. And so this issue I think will just continually happen because of the fact there is not education regarding this issue. Yeah, yeah, seriously. The, the, the key, again, is education. If people knew exactly, you know, how uh, Chihuahua is made or in how, how what it takes to create this uh, rather unfortunately deformed animal, perhaps they wouldn't uh, consider it as cute as, as, as they do currently. It's all about education, and we, we need to start with, uh, with young people because uh, the older generation quite clearly is not uh, going to learn very, very anything soon. Or, of course, what your pet python will do if you let it go in the mountains. Right, yeah, we had the problem. That, that, that was Florida's problem, right? It started off with just one or two of these Burmese pythons, and now you've got so many that, that you can catch them on the road. So it, it, it can get out of hand very quickly. 
And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app when you get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.